I'm going to see if any of you are like me and ask a question. How many of you have ever been mad at someone over something that they did in a dream you had? Anybody else? Right, okay. I've had this happen with my wife where I wake up and I feel like we're in the middle of a big fight. And so I'm like, Am I, did we have a fight last night? Am I mad at her over something? And then I think about it and I realize it was a dream I had where we were like arguing in the dream or she did something that made me angry. And so I feel a certain type of way toward her over this dream. And if you like sit and just think about dreams, like they're just weird and crazy, right? Some dreams we have, they might make a little bit of sense. Like I can think about, you know, okay, I, I was th talking about this concept with someone or I was hanging out with this person and so they were in my dream. And other times, like I had one the other day, it was like so out of the blue, it was just random and weird. And I feel like most of the time, characters in my dream, like I know in real life, but this one, there were characters that I had no idea who they were and people in the dream. And so they can just be these really weird things. Dreams can be wild and absurd. In our time together, in our text, in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to get to see about this prophetic and apocalyptic dream that this prophet named Daniel had. And I can almost guarantee you it's just as crazy as any dream or vision that any of you guys have had, right? The only difference is that I believe Daniel's dream has incredible detail and purpose. Every detail matters. And it's meant to communicate a very important message that is in line with the rest of the book of Daniel. As we've said, the theme of the book is the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. And our text today is going to communicate that extremely clearly. So good morning again, church. Um, as always, it is a joy to be with you on Sunday, the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of the King. If you don't know, that is why we gather on Sunday morning. Um, last week, Kevin was preaching and my nine-year-old son was sitting by me and Kevin said something about Jesus raising from the dead on Sunday morning. And my son leaned over to me and he's, it's like a light bulb just clicked and he goes, is that why we gather here on Sundays? And I like teared up and I was like, yeah, that's exactly right, buddy. Like every week we're gathering here as a part of the resistance against sin and death and darkness. And when we come together in this simple way, we are declaring together by faith because we don't always feel it. It doesn't always seem like it, but we're declaring by faith that at the end of the day, Jesus got back up out of the grave and he wins. And we're also confessing our need for him to come back and rescue us and put all things together again. And so I just wanna thank you for joining us. It's, a good, it's good for me to be reminded of the miracle that is the gathered church here together. As we've said a few times now, we are continuing today in our series through Daniel, the prophetic uh, book of Daniel. And we're gonna be in chapter seven, if you wanna make your way there. There are Bibles scattered around. We'll also have the verses on the screen for you as well. So follow along however you want. If it takes you a while to find it, no problem, it takes me every time I try to find it, so don't feel bad. In many ways, Daniel chapter seven is the most important and most central book of, or chapter of the entire book. It bridges the first six chapters and the last six chapters together. And so what the writer's gonna do, like the breakdown of Daniel is pretty simple. The first six chapters, the first half are stories about God's faithfulness and sovereignty. And the second half, the last six chapters are visions about God's sovereignty and faithfulness, but they're communicating the same overall message. First six chapters, straightforward narratives about God taking care of his people. The stories, these historical accounts, they contain some crazy things, but they're just these historical narratives, these earthly pictures of God's rule and reign in the midst of chaos on earth. And so the last six chapters, which for better or worse, we're about to wade into today, right? 
They're telling the same message just from a heavenly perspective instead of an earthly perspective. And so things get even a little crazier, right? This is the part of the book where a lot of people stay away from. And by the end of it, we might've been like, now we know why, but we're gonna dive in. So we're gonna spend about four weeks. There's four different visions. And we're gonna be looking at the first of those four visions today. So chapter seven is a vision, eight is a vision, nine is a vision, and then 10 through 12 is a vision. And so we're gonna break it down that way over the next four weeks, okay? Before we get into the text, I think it's gonna be helpful to set some ground rules for reading what is called apocalyptic literature, okay? Vastly different from what we just read. Normally a book contains the same type of literature, but sometimes like a book like Daniel, first six are historical narrative and this is apocalyptic, okay? Now most people, when they hear apocalyptic genre of literature, they think that it deals with the end times. And that can be partially true, but we don't need to limit it to that. Apocalyptic simply means unveiling or revealing. That's why you have revelations. So the goal of apocalyptic literature is kind of to peel back the heavenly curtains where we can see who's really in charge and we can see what God's doing. And so it's supposed to encourage us as we live in a world where from an earthly perspective, it seems like God is not in charge and God is not in control. And so we need to understand that the primary goal of apocalyptic literature is to encourage God's people, not to confuse God's people, okay? But let's admit apocalyptic literature gets a little funky sometimes, right? Because anytime someone gets a glimpse into a heavenly realm and then they try to explain it in earthly terms, we're limited by words and symbolism and pictures. And so it's gonna get a little interesting. Maybe you've had a kid like ask you to explain something and you're trying to explain this concept or this idea and so you start using symbolism. Well, it's like this. The other day, my son, I was explaining flying to Tijuana like I'm gonna be doing in a, in a month or so and I was talking about a passport. And he was trying to understand a passport. So then I was trying to, I said, well, it's kind of like a driver's license. But then I was trying to explain a, a passport doesn't mean you can fly the plane. Like a driver's license means you can drive a car. And then I was trying to explain it was like a state ID because he has a state ID. And then like the concepts began breaking down and he was fixated on what I was trying to say it was like instead of the actual thing. And so that's kind of what goes on. We can get fixated on the word or symbolism or picture instead of seeing it as an example or a parallel. And so let's, let's be careful to not get stuck on the symbol and miss what it's meant to represent, okay? So let me give you a few. This is kind of like an introduction to the second half of the book almost. So um, I'm gonna give you a few simple guidelines that I've kind of picked up over the years as I've read apocalyptic literature. And so these are just a few guidelines before we read the text that I try to follow as I read apocalyptic literature. First one, stay humble, okay? From start to finish, this is the most important one. If someone tries to tell you definitively that they have the key to unlocking the secret of this prophecy that no one in church history has had for the last 2000 years, but now they've got it, I'm gonna get a little skeptical, right? And you should get a little skeptical. Now there's nothing wrong with having a framework and knowing what you believe, but many good men and women throughout church history have disagreed as to each of the detailed meaning of these apocalyptic passages. And so, I think what's helpful for us in the pursuit of unity, we need to avoid dogmatic stances that ostracize, demean, or belittle those that might take a little bit different approach to some of the interpretation of passages that are difficult like the one we're reading today. So stay humble. Secondly, stay focused on the main message of the text, okay? 
Don't miss the forest for the trees, as some people would say. Um, Some people have said it this way, keep the main thing the main thing. When you read an apocalyptic text, there will be a lot you don't understand. All right, like that's completely okay. Let's just put it on the table. There's gonna be a lot in here that I don't understand that you don't understand. There's a ton in here that I'm like, I have no idea what that means. So I'm just gonna skip it and y'all can ask me about it later. But I will say this, the overarching message is almost always very clear. So go ahead and study and search the things you don't understand, but be okay with living in the mystery in those areas, holding that with an open hand and holding fast to the main overarching truths that are being communicated. Okay, and then thirdly, literary faithfulness. Remember that the goal of reading the scriptures is to read with literary faithfulness and integrity, which does not always equal meaning reading literally, okay? So people who take a more dogmatic approach to some of these texts have at times accused others of not taking the scripture serious because they don't take everything what they say literally, right? But I would argue that taking the scriptures extremely serious means that we read with literary faithfulness and integrity. Not all the scriptures, not all genres of the text are meant to be read the same. Poetry is not meant to be read like narrative. Apocalyptic writings are not meant to be read like historical chronicles. Proverbs are not meant to be read like epistles or letters from the apostle Paul, right? We take each genre seriously. And so we say, let's be faithful. And what kind of literary genre was this written in? And so in apocalyptic literature, symbolism abounds. Again, it's because the writer is trying to communicate otherworldly ideas and realities in earthy terms, okay? So there's always gonna be a gap and that's okay. We don't have full eyes to see right now, but we're getting a glimpse, okay? So you're gonna see a lot of this thing is like this thing. It doesn't mean it is that thing. It's, it's like it or similar. It's the best way he could communicate it, okay? So looking for allegory and symbolism, especially in apocalyptic literature, is not being unfaithful to the text. In fact, I would say you're in good company with the early church fathers and with Jesus himself in the way he interpreted some of this apocalyptic literature, okay? So a lot of groundwork, All right, now we're just gonna read the text like we're doing through Daniel. It's gonna take me a little bit, but let's lean in together. I want you to kind of just listen like we've done every week. Um, Listen to it like like it's a vision being recounted to you by Daniel himself and explain it to you. And then we'll kind of dissect the text together. So Daniel chapter seven. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, 
frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had 10 horns. While I was considering the horn, suddenly another horn, a little one came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heavens. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, I mean what I said, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until... The ancient of days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the most high for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. 
the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord. So let me just say, I'm not gonna be able to cover every little thing and every question you have. So if you have questions, maybe set them to the side for just a moment um, as we go through and and try to follow me. And then we can talk about those later. Feel free to grab me afterwards, but we're gonna cover what we can. So um, if you noticed at the beginning of the telling of this dream, Daniel dates this account right away in the first verse. If you're following along, we're actually moving back in history a bit to the beginning of the telling of this dream. Okay, sorry, to the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. So we're anywhere from 15 to 20 years before the accounts from chapter five and six. So Belshazzar and Daniel in the lion's den were quite a ways back in history. And so Daniel's recording this dream post having it, okay? So a lot to take in. Before we get in the weeds, let's practice one of our rules, which is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so we have to ask, what is the main point of all this? And if you're paying attention closely, which it took me like 20 times reading through it to realize that the text actually tells us right away what the main point is, the summary of it. Daniel actually said, I wanted to know the purpose of this vision after recounting it. And in verse 17 and 18, he gets a summary answer. Now he goes on to ask more detail, but this is the summary answer he gets from this probably an angel standing there. The angel says, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth This is not a good thing if you're in Daniel's position with these earthly kings that are oppressing him, right? But 18, the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. This is the summary statement of all of this vision. Earthly kingdoms will come and go, but the people of God will not be forgotten and they will be invited into the eternal kingdom by the power of God. That's the big picture idea, okay? So let's look a little closer at this vision and see how it fleshes out this main idea. So we're told about these four winds, right? Which just signifies the fullness, right? The four corners of the earth. It signifies the fullness of the whole earth. And these four winds stir up the great sea. The great sea represented chaos and the unknown. So it makes sense that these four beasts would come up out of this great sea, right? So four beasts, four winds. Maybe we're starting to see some of the symbolism, right? But we're told that these four beasts represent four kings or kingdoms. They're kind of used interchangeably. Um, We're told that the fourth beast, though, there's something special about him, right? Like the first three are your standard bad guys. They get a short little explanation, but the fourth is like the super villain, right? Like the boss that if you're playing through a video game to get to the next level, you've got to beat the super boss, the super villain. This is this super beast, right? So using animals to illustrate kings and kingdoms was very common. It's actually very common in our day, right? America is represented often by an eagle, right? Even in our political parties, I could say an elephant and a donkey. You could look at a political cartoon, right? And it's not trying to tell you about an elephant and a donkey, right? It's it's telling you something about real life, about 
political parties and things like that, right? Another example thrown out in preaching team uh, was mascots, right? If I told you a, a crimson tide, you know, rolled over a tiger, I don't know, Alabama has like 40 different mascots, you know, it's kind of weird, but which I guess, you know, war eagle and then a tiger, I don't know how all that works. But anyways, right, we see these using animals as illustrations to symbolize um, a certain thing or group of people, right, to illustrate a message. We're not meant to get stuck on the animal itself, we're supposed to see what it represents, okay? Now, so we see four beasts. Almost every scholar believes that this corresponds to the four kingdoms of Daniel chapter two. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue and there were four different kingdoms represented. Um, everyone is in agreement that the first kingdom in both chapter two and this chapter represent Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, okay? After that, depending on which scholar you ask, you might get disagreement. Some believe that the second kingdom was the Medo-Persia empire combined. The third was Greece and the fourth was Rome. Some believe that the Medo Media empire was the second, the Persia empire was the third and Greece was the fourth and final beast. Regardless, okay, because there's differing views, the main point is this, that there will be kingdoms that arise, real kingdoms, that have real earthly consequences that oppress the holy ones of the most high. And for Daniel, if we've been following along, this is not a surprise, right? We've read the stories of three men being thrown into a fire, of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, of, of this oppression, of them being taken into exile. And so maybe the specific kingdoms that these beasts represent are not as important as this idea of four kingdoms, which means fullness. The reality is that this passage in all of scripture shows us that no matter where and when, what age the people of God find themselves in, there will be oppression. There will be resistance to the people of God living faithfully as God's kingdom citizens. There will be pressure to give in to the cultural ideas of the day. And so we see this battle being waged in the heavenly realm. It's interesting to notice the difference in the way these kingdoms are portrayed in this vision versus chapter two. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision kind of uh, portrayed these kingdoms as prominent and prosperous and powerful. But here we see them as beastly and oppressive, not glorious. See what might look like prosperity, what might look like God's blessing from an earthly standpoint can actually look like oppression from the throne room of heaven. And so let this be a caution to us as we align ourselves with earthly rulers and kingdoms. So we're told about these four beasts, but we're also told about this four super beast that has horns on his head, right? That's something we're all like, what do the horns mean, right? Then there's this little arrogant one, right? So they represent kings. We were told that this little arrogant one, right? Little man syndrome, he's like speaking loudly and boldly, this little horn, right? Um, yeah, so anyways, this is gonna make another comment. I'm not going to. All right. But this little horn is arrogantly speaking and he wages war against the holy ones, right? So the horns represent kings. Some people think they're specific literal kings. Some people think 10, again, is just kind of representing completion. You can go read about all that. Some have equated this specific horn to a very specific future antichrist figure. Um, others have already seen this fulfilled historically in Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruler who desecrated the Jewish temple around 175 BC. Um, others think maybe it's Nero, right? Right after the time of Christ, um, who oppressed the people of God in the first century. Those are all valid views. Honestly, personally, I'm inclined to believe it could be all of the above, 
right? Um, I think that these apocalyptic visions are intentionally left vague so that they can be repurposed in future generations because the main truths are relevant for all people in all times, okay? There's kind of two ditches as we talk about this, then we're gonna move on. One is assuming that this is so specific of a fulfillment that it already happened, it has no meaning for us in this day and age, right? The other ditch is like looking for fulfillment of this text around every corner, right? Like who's the new antichrist popping up and it's like kind of centering ourselves as if our place we live and our moment in history is the central moment of history. When it's not, like go back to the cross and resurrection if you want to know the central moment of history, okay? Regardless of immediate meaning, all right? Hopefully that satisfies you enough to move on with me. The clear thing that this passage seems to be doing is moving us from one degree of evil to another, right? So you have the, the three beasts and the fourth beast, and then on the fourth beast, you have the 10 horns, but then you have the one horn that rises up, right? It's like we're seeing the worst of evil just spiraling out of control until it meets its fullness or its apex in this beastly antichrist figure. The exact opposite. Humans were given dominion to serve others, to cultivate life, and this beastly figure has now done the exact opposite. He is oppressing and domineering and lording over the weak and the exile and the foreigner. No regard to whom is hurt or crushed in the process. And in the vision, if you're reading it, the fourth beast is winning. The holy ones are losing the battle. Like we're told they're being defeated for a time. And then it multiplies, then it's two times. And then you would expect to read next that it's four times and it gets worse and worse. But then we see this rule and reign of this beastly dominion cut off suddenly. Instead of four times, we read half a time because someone else steps in. And who is this someone? It is one called the Ancient of Days. And I love the way like this scene is set. And we're reading this and beasts are raging and horns are oppressing others. And then you kind of have this just calm, cool and collected. Like if you've ever helped us set up chairs in here, right? They're just kind of setting up these thrones. Slowly, methodically. And the ancient of days just comes in and takes his place on the throne. The creator of the universe. God, Yahweh. We're told the books are opened and the court is convened. This is not a battlefield. This is a judgment hall. And this super beast with the great arrogant horn that no other earthly king could stand up to is destroyed forever. We don't read of a big battle. We don't read of a war waged, just a sovereign God dealing with evil and coming to the rescue of his people. Like my seven-year-old daughter, she'll talk about God and we'll talk about the devil and she'll be like, yeah, God could just like, boop, kill the devil like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Like just with the word of his mouth, he can send this beastly figure representing evil, the enemy, Satan, into a burning fire pit forever. And so more important than identifying exactly who this horn on this beast was or is, more important than that is what God does to it. And this is a truth that we need to reclaim as God's people. No matter what it looks like from an earthly perspective, evil does not win. And I get it, we can get, we can get 
just very negative about it. And, and uh, we're not, again, just this kind of like blind faith. No, we're saying like, this is real. God rules and reigns. We don't have to look far in our age to see super beast and anti-Jesus people, rulers and nations speaking arrogantly, like claiming that they can save the world with their politics and policies. I'm like, do you really think that you were the one that did that? Like seriously? Sometimes even saying they are God's chosen ones. And I'm like, your actions declare anything but a quiet faithfulness. Like you're just speaking arrogantly, oppressing and abusing the foreigner and poor, using them as political pawns in a game. That's evil. And I'm just talking about here in our country, all right? Like we haven't even got to the whole world, right? Like the evil around the world. If you want to know about the global church, like ask one of our global church planning partners that we're sending out. And they can tell you that suffering and oppression of God's people is normative. Like the anomaly is not facing persecution and suffering. And what I love about the unveiling of the heavenly realm, it acknowledges that these beasts and powers are terrifying. I mean, Daniel's like, you'll see him like losing sleep over it. Evil is real. And like, it, like it's scary. There's fear in our hearts. If you're going to share the gospel in a context where persecution is expected, like the fear is real. But just as real as the beast of evil is the God who destroys it. The sovereign one who exercises authority over all workers of iniquity and puts it into it with the word of his mouth. And so we see this ancient of days, the creator of the universe. And honestly, you would kind of expect that if you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. But then you also get this other character. We're told it's one like a son of man, a human. And we're told that this son of man, he approaches the ancient of days as he's on his throne. So he's distinct from him, but he's also given dominion. The same language about the kingdom of the son of man is used simultaneously about the kingdom of the ancient of days, God, Yahweh. Because this son of man is the Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And it is through him, he is the means by which this battle is won. The title of son of man taken from this chapter, Daniel chapter seven, is the primary way by far that Jesus referred to himself in the gospel accounts. Other people called him the son of God, the Messiah. Primarily, Jesus called himself the son of man. He is the one by which all nations, tribes, and tongues are rescued from the evil beast and transformed to worship the true king. We sang about this just a moment ago, but unlike Adam in the garden, he is the true and better Adam. Adam was supposed to have dominion over the beast and instead he was ruled by the serpent, the beast who tricked him and tempted him. But Jesus rules over the beast and there was a promise in Genesis three that there would be one who would come, the seed of Eve that would come and crush the head of the serpent and that's fulfilled in Christ. He becomes the perfect son of man, that the word made flesh, never, never stained in his suffering, lives the perfect life, even when the evil beast himself, Satan, tips him in the wilderness. 
with all the kingdoms of this age and said, look how glorious and beautiful they are. Become like the beast who worships earthly kingdoms and builds them. And he remains steadfast, even at the cost of his own life. And the way he wages war against this beast is so upside down from what we would expect. He loves his enemies. Even the rulers that represent these beasts that place him on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It doesn't make sense. Like, like boop, get rid of them. That's what I would do. But no, he, he surrenders and succumbs to the worst evil ever. The greatest powers of darkness the world had ever known. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In contrast to this little arrogant horn who wants to speak words arrogantly. Like a lamb to the slaughter. On our behalf, he absorbs all the evil in the world on his shoulders. Both the evil of the, the, the evil rulers and empires, big picture nations. But also the beastly inclinations in the hearts of all of us fallen humans. We are not like Jesus in this story. We are like the first Adam who gives in to the temptations. We give in to the beastly desires to, to push God off his throne and arrogantly stand up and say, let me build my own kingdom. And we destroy ourselves and others in the process, but not Jesus. He remains faithful. And he's the one who's thrown, cast into darkness, even though that should have been us. We should have been thrown with the beast into utter darkness. But Christ took that on our behalf as he enters into the tomb. And he lays there. But as we say every week, he didn't stay there. Every week we're celebrating Easter. The powers of darkness could not hold him. And just as easy as that little boop, he embarrasses the dark powers. And he gets back up out of the grave. And he shows his might over sin, death, and the serpent. And he fulfills the promise that he would crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin once and for all. Evil does not have the last word. Like no matter what you've been through, no matter what you face, no matter the sin done to you or what you've done, there is hope because of this son of man. This is the real victory. This is it. And he's promised to return, right? That's why some of this fulfillment is like a kind of a both and, right? Like the, the upside down way of the kingdom that is already but not yet, right? Like it's fulfilled in part but not fullness, right? And I love this because we read in our passage that this kingdom that should have been the son of man's alone, that's delivered to the son of man, what does he do? He shares it with the holy ones of the most high, which is a stupid way to refer to a bunch of sinners. Holy ones of the most high, like what? But in Christ, because we get his life instead of our sinful life, we are made right. We are made new. When we trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we receive his perfect humanity. And we begin to live out who we were really created to be, which is not imaging beasts and animals but imaging the son of man. We begin to take on the image of Christ as he breathes by the power of the spirit, new life into our dry bones. And he rips out a dead heart and gives us a heart of flesh that loves him. 
This is what's offered in the gospel. We get the eternal kingdom that only Christ deserved. Do you not know that you will judge angels is what Paul says? I don't even know what exactly that means. But like we get to be a part of ruling and reigning with Christ. It's crazy. Without Christ, we're heading, the best human and the best nation are becoming beastly creatures, destroying and domineering over all. But with Christ, when the spirit of God makes us new, we become new creations. Real humans who we were created to be, we receive the kingdom of God. And this is a right here and now. You get to rule and reign with Christ through the little everyday stuff. And yeah, it might not look like a bunch of thrones being set in place and you looking like Gandalf up there, right? Like we're just hanging on to God as he's like, you know, powerfully working in the world. And it's just through like the quiet resistance of evil by living subversive, faithful, sacrificial lives to the glory of God. Loving our enemies. You can't do that without the power of Christ. You can't even like your boss, let alone someone who's trying to kill you. Like, we can't do that. We need God to make us new. Praying for those who hurt us and use us. Taking the gospel to those who've never heard. That's kingdom come, dominion, rule, reign with Christ. And we live these lives with great boldness and confidence, knowing that nothing can stop it. How do you think Daniel stood in the lion's den, not even worried because he had seen this vision. God wins at the end. So no matter what happens in the here and now, like he wins. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, all authority, all dominion, when he's commissioning them to go make disciples, he makes sure to tell them all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, because I'm in charge here, because I've proved that on the cross and resurrection, now go. Make disciples of all nations. So we go with confidence, even when every earthly sign points to death and defeat. The unveiling of heavenly truths speak a better word. Jesus and the holy ones win. So that's in the here and now. And one day, guess what? The kingdom in its fullness is coming. There's a hope there. Together, all nations, tribes, and tongues bowing in reverence before the ancient of days, singing worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. That's true reality. I can't wait. The other day I was talking to my, my nine-year-old son. He was like, he says, sometimes I'm worried that the new creation like isn't gonna be real. He's like, I feel like it's gonna be like a dream. And so I don't know if I'm gonna like it. Cause we talk about the new creation often and longing for it and stuff. And I said, buddy, I said like, like this is gonna be what feels like the dream. Like that, that's gonna be more real than we could ever know. And I'm like trying to explain it to him. Like, I don't even understand it, buddy. But like, I trust that it's gonna be better. Like that's gonna be reality. This right here is just a foretaste, a snapshot, a small little sliver, like a mother or father trying to explain to its kid like what a steak tastes like because all they know is chicken nuggets. I'm like, no, you don't, see, like one day you'll understand. But even more infinitely so, we'll see it with our eyes. That's reality because of the son of man. So to you all, if you've trusted in the life, death, burial, and resurrection, let me say to you, holy ones of the most high, that's who you are. Be encouraged through sickness and death, through oppression and mockery, through temptation and sin, 
through wars and disease, through suffering and persecution, God reigns and his dominion will never pass away. Evil will cease, pain will be no more and grief will end. And somehow all of that will work glory. And the glory of the kingdoms of man will be brought into the earthly kingdoms, will be subservient to the glory of God. We read that in this passage, we read it in Revelation. We will rule and reign forever and flowing from God's throne will no longer be a river of destructive fire. What we see in Revelation is a river of life-giving water. And we're told that all who thirst can come drink from the water without price. All we bring is our emptiness. Truly, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed.